recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, May 26th, 2012. Okay, I was looking for a, for a program I didn't have to work too hard to produce tonight, and I got one. Um, I'll be on a road next week. I'll be next weekend's programs will be broadcast from the home of Pastor Mark Downey, kinsmanredeemer.org. And I will be speaking next week at the, the, um, the Fellowship of God's Covenant People at the invitation of Mark and Don Elmore. And that should be um, hopefully, well, well, I expect it to be a pleasant experience, and hopefully I'll be able to um, offer something worth their time. From there, I'll be traveling to um, through Tennessee to Louisiana and and on to Florida eventually, and and I'll be doing my programs from the road from from the um, the homes of various good Christian identity identity families, and and that should also be quite edifying. Now tonight, Sword Brethren and I are going to present the paper. This paper is from the um, the German. Propaganda Archive at Calvin EDU, Calvin University. Let me say before we begin this that the German Propaganda Archive, most of the material on it has been produced and has been translated into English by a, by a fellow that goes by the name Randall Bitwork or Bitwork. I, I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't even think that it's his real name, B-Y-T-W-E-R-K. Although it may be, it may be his real name. It seems to me to be a, um, a pseudonym. I could be wrong about that. Well, well um, Mr. Bitwork is, or Bitwork, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, I'm sorry. Mr. Bitwork is not seemingly sympathetic to the, the, the National Socialist cause. He, he often seems to be hostile to it, but it is a valuable service he does in making this information readable to us um, lesser people who only read English, and, and I must count myself amongst them. I, I wish I could read German, but I've never learned. Sword Brethren, hello. How are we doing tonight? I'm fine. How are you? And I just wanted to point out that it appears that this guy is translating this not as a favor to white nationalists or historians. He's basically doing this from an enemy perspective, trying to discredit the National Socialists. But in so doing, he's revealing, you know, exactly what was going on. So he's really shooting himself in the foot, isn't he, by making these things available to us? Well, well he's really shooting the, the, the honest... Inquirer, yeah, you know, as, as far as making this available to honest inquirers, he is shooting himself in the foot. Um, he, his, he often seems hostile to National Socialism. He often seems hostile to people who are anti-Semitic. And, and sometimes he seems to be candid, and, and, and every once in a while he makes a statement that that leads me to believe that perhaps he's not as hostile as he sounds, and and I can't prove that, but but some of his statements do lead me to believe that. So, but but I think he does everybody a service making this information available in in what seems to be truly honest translations. Uh, I have compared some of his translations of speeches to other translations, and and they seem to be academic and straightforward 
and, and I don't um I, I don't doubt his his you know his um the, I don't doubt the fact that he intends to be honest in in the work that he presents. I don't doubt that. I think that he he is doing us a favor, but he is also doing this for the the um the presentation of history as it is and and um some of the material he produces it is quite valuable that's the way I see it he, even though he often seems hostile to Germany and hostile to national socialism and a friend of our our um our Jewish well, well, I, I don't want to call him that. A, a friend of the Jews in general. Okay, praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. And, and tonight we will present this paper. It, it's um, German soldiers in the Soviet Union, letters from the East. And, and it's, he, he, he is translating a book that was written. Let, let me read his introduction and, and background. When the Nazis, as he calls them, invaded the Soviet Union in June 1941, they encountered a propaganda windfall. I wouldn't call it a propaganda windfall. I would say that they encountered the truth, which, which was quite opposed to the propaganda that was being produced by the Russians well, at the, the time. You? The Soviets had been trumpeting the idea that they were a worker's paradise and they were the best country in the world. And, oh, the West is in the Great Depression. Look at America. The workers suffer while in the Soviet Union. It's a, a boundless bounty and a, and a wonderful paradise with milk and honey. And the Germans simply encountered the stark truth. Well, well, right, and, and with that, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a break, and and I'm gonna present a couple of lines from an article that that's called "Myth of the USSR Strong Economy." Media, and it says this in quotes, right? Media experts, quote unquote, often believed Soviets' crude propaganda, and, and this article says that, and I quote. The early Soviet Union attracted quite a few admiring fans, including famous British socialists like novelist H.G. Wells and playwright George Bernard Shaw, the father of Fabian socialism, right? In 1935, two founding members of Britain's Labour Party, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, wrote a flattering book titled Soviet Communism, a new civilization, and it's a question. Later editions omitted the question mark. Soviet communism, a new civilization, and it's a statement, right? The Webs and others painted Russia as a once backward country. This is the popular perception today, right? Painted Russia as a once backward country, rapidly industrializing under a forward-looking Stalin. And, and, and many people today still have that impression from Jewish media in the West that, that painted that picture, and, and they were lying all along. At the same time, the Soviet Union was indeed industrializing, but it was also starving to death. Well, well, at the same time, much of the world was still industrializing, right? An estimated 14 million Soviet people died from famine in the early 1930s when Stalin collectivized all farming. But Walter Durante, and the Jew, Walter Durante's a Jew, Moscow correspondent for the New York Times, dismissed the famine as an exaggeration of malignant propaganda. In 1933, Durante reported, village markets flowing with eggs, fruit, poultry, vegetables, milk, and butter at prices far lower than in Moscow. A child can see that this is not famine, 
but abundance. That same year, Durante was given a Pulitzer Prize for stories on the Soviet economy, which are, quote, marked by scholarship, profundity, impartiality, sound judgment, and exceptional clarity. What could be a bigger lie than that? And, and that Durante's writing is basically representative of the writing of the Jewish press in the West throughout the, the, the Bolshevik years and, and well into the Stalin years, right? Absolutely. You know, tens of thousands, I think, somewhere around twenty to 30,000 Americans moved to the Soviet Union in the late 20s, like, you know, 29 and then into the early 30s. And a number of um, blacks went there. Paul Robeson went on a visit to hobnob with all of his fellow civil rights activist blacks. And when he was there, he was asking some people, you know, how's everything going? Where's my friend? He was friends with a Jewish author, and he asked about him. And some guy scribbled on a paper, purged by Stalin, dead. And then another guy scribbled on a paper, you know, please get me out of here, you know, put me in contact with, you know, the British or the Americans. And he, um, I think he reported him to the NKVD. And as for the fact that the Jewish author was killed, his friend was killed, he never told anybody. The official Soviet line was that the guy was on vacation and wasn't doing too well. He was, you know, on sabbatical or something. But he'd been shot in the back of the head and thrown in, you know, a shallow grave. Well, well, that became um, that, that became quite customary throughout the entire Soviet history that men were on vacation when they were really when they were really assassinated. Well, we still had this picture, though. I mean, Robeson came back to America, and he was just parroting the you know the Soviet party line that the. Soviets are a great society, their economy's better, blah, blah, blah. And, well, More these letters from German soldiers reveal a, a different version. Well, of well absolutely. More importantly, the Jewish press in America made Robeson a media hero, right? And, and he, he had no problem getting on all the radio interviews and all the newspapers and all the magazines. And he was trumpeted everywhere with his message of how wonderful the Soviet Union was. And the Jews, the Jews had done that on purpose because they were going to use the Soviet Union as an American ally, and they wanted Americans to have a very good view of the Soviet Union when it became our ally and we destroyed our kindred German nation in, in, in the 1940s. Okay, in January 1942, back to Randall Biteworks' um, background on this book that we're about to read excerpts from, the Nazis published a 60-page booklet entitled German Soldiers in the Soviet Union, Letters from the East. It consisted mostly of excerpts from letters from soldiers reporting on conditions they encountered. The letters, of course, were carefully selected, but soldiers had credibility, and the booklet surely had an impact, except that it never reached the West, right? Germans who read it even if they had doubts about Adolf Hitler, were likely to conclude that National Socialism was surely preferable to Bolshevism. The Russian number one report supports that, right? The book is divided into nine chapters. I hear translate, meaning Randall Bightwork here translates, several selections from each chapter. Wolfgang Diewerga, the I'm probably butchering that name, the author produced at least five other, as Bightwork calls them, Nazi anti-Semitic pamphlets that they were probably very good. 
The booklet, by the way, used the same cover drawing as the 1942 catalog for an exhibition on the Soviet Union available elsewhere on the German propaganda archive. The source, Wolfgang D. Werger, Deutsch Soldaten Sehen die Sowjet, Soviet, I guess, Union, Feldpostbrief aus dem Osten, published by Wilhelm Limpert Verlag in 1941 in Berlin. And, and I probably destroyed all of that German, I'm sorry. Soldier, German soldiers in the Soviet Union, letters from the East. Would you like to begin? The, the book begins with the following quotation from Goebbels, and I quote, Lying enemy propaganda never tires of accusing us of giving the German people a false or incomplete picture of the battles in the East. They are best refuted by letters from our soldiers. And there we have the presentation and the reason for the presentation in the book. Chapter 1, German Soldiers as Witnesses Against Bolshevism. The homeland hears about events at the front in an unbelievably short time. German radio often brings reports in the evening of deeds of arms that occurred only a few hours earlier. And the German newsreel includes pictures brought by air directly from the battlefields. The German people have almost direct contact with the accomplishments of their soldiers through the words, pictures, and reports of modern news media. Past generations could not feel so closely bound to their family members. Still, the best and most personal source of news in war is and remains the letter, that which the husband or son, the brother or the bridegroom puts on paper during a brief rest is not only longed for and treasured news from a beloved and irreplaceable person, but also a testimony and a report from one heart to another, one that speaks the right language. During World War I, the letters from the soldiers in Field Gray recorded the experiences and integrity of determined fighters who were willing to give their all. During this war, too, millions of German soldiers have reported their powerful experiences. Every family carefully preserves these letters. In party local groups within national socialist organizations and in factories, these letters from comrades are passed from hand to hand as eyewitness reports of upright German men. This pamphlet is a random sample of such letters. They were sent to us by citizens of every class and region. Many of them included this note, As I read this letter, I thought that others had to read it, too. Yes, that is true. There are millions of German citizens who do not have that direct contact with the front. They need to read these letters. They all deal with a theme that is particularly relevant today for the entire German people. What does the Soviet Union really look like? And as an aside, I would say if people want to see what the Soviet Union really looks like, they might consider Russia number one. Since Russia number one paints a pretty brutal story of the Soviet Union and it happens to be the truth. Well, well, not only Russia number one. I have a, um, I have a document now that I also received from the library of General Mosley, which you scanned, right? And, and a memorandum I, on certain aspects of the Bolshevik Revolution. Right, and that memorandum actually does um, substantiate and support much of the data which we see in Russia number one. These two documents, even though they're written from different perspectives. Because the, the United States Memorandum, which was published by um, a gentleman named Lansing from, from the State Department and presented to Henry Cabot Lodge, who, who was at that time the, um, the, the president of the Senate, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Well, well that report was written from a very um, impersonal Economic. perspective. It, it was written and to discuss a lot of the actual ideals of the Bolsheviks, what they believed what they published and believed from their own writing, right? Where Russian number one 
even though it testified to many of the same things, Russia number one was a series of reports from a personal perspective of what the, the diplomats and, and other embassy personnel in British embassies and in contact with those in British embassies had actually observed and witnessed, right? So these two reports are from a totally different perspective, but they corroborate each other in many ways, and, and they're, they're, they're much more valuable together than they are separately. Absolutely. Sometimes people think the fears propagandists exaggerate, though actual events have proven that, they, that what they say is less than the full truth. One thinks of the role of the Jews in unleashing this war of the horrors, or the horrors Poland committed against ethnic Germans. Some citizens who complained then about exaggerated reports of persecution and suffering today complain about 60,000 graves, victims of Polish murderers. But the most convincing proof of the difference between what was said and reality is clear from the revelations about Bolshevism. This unmasking is particularly important because millions of German citizens put their faith in the lying words of Jewish communists. They were told that within the borders of the Soviet Union there was the workers' paradise, the true home of the workers of the world. When National Socialist newspapers and books spoke of the social betrayal in the Soviet Union or of the horrible mass murders, the misery of children, the hopeless poverty of the entire population, some doubted these well-founded and carefully considered statements. Now there are millions of reliable witnesses in the middle of this workers' paradise. They cannot be doubted. They are not traveling along carefully prepared streets, nor can in-tourists guide them through a carefully selected factory. They must march meter by meter through the country. They fight for each village and each city, and they see face-to-face -face people who were for nearly 25 years the objects of Bolshevist domination. Now these German soldiers write their dear ones at home. They write what they have experienced an hour before. The letters are not always literary masterpieces, but they are as genuine as the men who wrote them. Some soldiers do not conceal the fact that they were not always national socialists. There are even letters, letter writers who faced legal penalties for their support for communism in the past. Nearly all of them remember the communist phrases and doctrines of the system era before 1933. They did not march into the Soviet Union expecting to find everything bad, but rather they were eager to see how things really were in the land of Lenin and Stalin. They reported what they saw, often in hastily written letters. These letters are lined up here like a company on the front. They are not on parade, but rather ready for battle. Some soldiers and some letters are large or small, broad or narrow, intelligent or less so, sparse or enthusiastic. We see in the newsreels the faces of marching soldiers who greet us, sometimes tired and exhausted, always, however, with a clear, confident look and in the firm conviction that they are in the service of a good cause. These letters are the same. They are only a small part of the enormous material available. There will certainly be some citizens who say we have received better and more interesting letters. That is fine. We can agree. We have chosen only letters that were clearly written with no expectation of later publication, letters that give an idea of what has impressed our soldiers. Those Germans who read these letters and those who wrote them ask the question, what would have happened to our women, mothers, and children if the Bolshevist tanks and murderers had overrun our homeland? And, of course, we saw that in 44, 45, and then for the next 50 years, didn't we? Well, well absolutely have, and, and look at Germany today. It's, it's, a, it's, it's the immoral cesspool 
of race mixing and homosexuality and, and all other kinds of disgusting behavior that Adolf Hitler and Joseph Goebbels and, and the rest of the National Socialists stopped with the Weimar Republic when, when they overthrew it. And, and that's basically what they did. They overthrew it politically, but they overthrew it. And that, you know, the Jews tried to bring Germany down the path where it is today. They tried to do it 80, 90 years ago in the Weimar Republic. And even before that, in, in the late 19th century, when immorality and, and lasciviousness were becoming prevalent. And, and, and they, the Jews weren't really successful. National socialism was a backlash not only against communism, but also against the immorality of the Weimar Republic. And, and um, today, basically, the Jews, the Jews won World War II, and now the entire West it is become Sodom and Gomorrah. Absolutely. And Germany today is such a miserable country that just a few weeks ago, I believe it was on the 8th of May, they were celebrating the Soviet victory over Germany, and several thousand people were parading through Berlin waving Soviet flags. And They even reenacted the un unconditional surrender, the signing of the surrender documents. Which is a disgrace to their own grandparents that suffered and resisted and, and were opposed to the Soviets. That's a sign of a people in a deep sickness. Absolutely. It, it's how many Americans would be cheering if the Red Army from China marched, you know, sailed across the Pacific and, and marched through, through the United States? That there'd be Americans lining the streets happy as hell, waving Chinese flags. You know there would be. You could see it in their faces. They have no idea what these heathen bastards are like. And I'm sure most of them would be useful idiot types that would soon be dead from the, the new Chinese well, well, masters. Well, we are going to learn what the Soviets had done to Latvia in, in some of these letters. And, and what, when, when, when we get to that point, we'll be mindful of the fact that the Lets, the, the Latvian people, were, um, they, their armies were, were hired as mercenaries so that the Bolsheviks could, could pull off the, the, the October Revolution, right? So their chickens came home to roost. Absolutely. Okay, to continue, surely many more reports of the Fuhrer's great campaign will reach the public. Even now, the whole nation is waiting for the hour when the secrets can be revealed and the deeds of those made clear who today are unknown heroes. None of those later reports will surpass the immediacy of these simple soldiers' letters, which are being published even as the fighting army is in the midst of bloody battles on the wide plains of the East. Perhaps some of the letter writers will read this small book in the hospital, Perhaps one or two say their last words in these letters. That is why these letters move us so deeply. They demonstrate that this decisive battle did not come from the lust for power or conquest, from political vanity or excessive fanaticism. That is what our enemies say. But these letters show that the culture of Germany and of Europe hang on this battle. It will decide whether subhuman Bolshevism destroys all that which is noble and holy to Germans, or whether the German soldier and his brave allies will build the foundation of a new era of peace and freedom. I think, you know, World War II, we could basically say it was a, a contest between those who favored national sovereignty and racial purity and those who wanted an international global police state, and the internationalists won. Well, well, the results of history are, are laid bare now for all to see, right? The internationalists very clearly won. And, and even though the, um, the, there has been resistance in the, with, within the confines of the American political system, 
Ronald Reagan and, and Richard Nixon, the, the supposed conservatives, they made the world safe for globalism. That, that they helped seal the, the Jewish victory over the world by persuading the American conservative that globalism was good. And, and most American conservatives are just, they're, they're plain idiots. They're, there's no doubt. Where globalism because, is mutually exclusive with conservatism. Well, well absolutely. Glo- globalism and conservatism, it, it, you can't have globalist conservatism. It's an oxymoron. I'm, I mean, let's face it. If people would only look at the facts, if they would only look and see what's happened to this nation under globalism, it's done anything but conserve the nation. It's actually destroyed it. Absolutely. The soldiers whose letters here reach the public believe, along with all their comrades, in the necessity of the struggle and in the certainty of victory. Who can be less confident than these men who not only stared the world enemy Bolshevism in the eye, but also defeated it wherever they encountered it? These letters touch on every aspect of life. Everything that concerns soldiers has been set on paper. Naturally, the purely personal and family matters have been edited out, as have military details that could be of use to the enemy. We were able to select only the most interesting sections of letters. In each case, the name of the sender and his military address is given, often also the address of the receiver. That should bring pleasure to the writer who sees his words in print. It should also make it impossible for doubters to question the genuineness of the letters. Now, now, this is the only chapter that Bytework has provided on his website in full. That this, is, that this book, German Soldiers in the Soviet Union, Letters from the East, is available um, for sale, and it is available through the German Propaganda Archive, I believe. Well, well Randall By it, its translator has made um, samples of many of the letters selected from the passages throughout the next six or seven chapters of the book. And um, there are plenty exemplary enough of the the material in the rest of the book that that, um, we will get a good idea of the content of these letters of these German soldiers, right? Absolutely. Would you like to take over? Well, well, right. Chapter two is entitled The Worker's Paradise, which we know it was anything but, right? And these are excerpts from these letters, and, and as all these chapters are. Um, I don't know if any complete letters are, are presented in the book. There are um, – the, 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 the translator didn't make available every letter, and, and chapter two actually has tw- excerpts from 24 letters – and and here we only have one, and that's from Lieutenant Otto Dysonroth, mil- military post number 12, 827D. He's writing to a local group leader, um, Kemmel in Altena in Mainfranken. This was written on the 30th of July, 1941. Dear Comrade Carl, I write this letter from the desolation of a Ukrainian forest village, 40 40 kilometers from Kyiv, which we hope to capture in a few days, meaning Kyiv. The fruitful land of the Ukraine is all around us, but 20 years of Bolshevist mismanagement have brought it to ruin. The poverty, misery, and filth we have seen and experienced in the past weeks is indescribable. You back home cannot imagine the terrible results of Bolshevism 
in this fruitful land. Now, now let me say that the Ukraine was known as the breadbasket of Europe for many years, many decades before the um, before the Bolshevik Revolution, and and food, grain was was exported from the Ukraine to all of Europe for a long time. You know, even during the height of the famine, they were still exporting grain. And a lot of leftists tell me that the Ukrainian farmers, the kulaks, went on strike and refused to grow food, and they just starved themselves to death because they wouldn't grow anything. And, and they were trying to sabotage the Soviet system. Of and, course, and that doesn't pick why. That, that's an absolute bold-faced lie. It doesn't pan out when you look at the fact that the NKVD was there extracting a huge amount of food, and the Soviets were exporting food out of the Ukraine. Even the Russian number one report reports it actually reports all of the um, the forced removal of grain from farms where where they were not even leaving farmers the seed grain that they would plant for next year's crop. Hmm. On with the letter. You back home cannot imagine the terrible results of Bolshevism in this fruitful land. Everything that we formerly read in newspapers and books pales in the face of terrible reality. Our eyes look in vain for some sign of construction, for a trace of progress, for a bit of culture. We yearn for the sight of a clean house, an orderly street, a few tended gardens, a few trees. Wherever we look, there is filth, decay, desolation, misery, death, and suffering. Everywhere we see the ghost of Bolshevism and the tortured look of farmers, the blank stares of captives, the hundreds of murdered people, the farmhouses, desolate buildings and ruined houses. I sometimes think it is all the work of the devil. Well, well wasn't he right? The land was rich when it was inhabited by German, Ukrainian, Czech, and Polish farmers. Then Bolshevism came, and with it, enormous misery. Everything that was prosperous or cultured was killed or burned. I spoke with dozens of people whose family members, fathers, husbands, brothers, and sons, perished somewhere in Murmansk, Siberia, or the icy north. Thousands died during the Great Famine, particularly in 1932 and 1933. Thousands more ended up in prisons and jails. The misery of those freed from Bolshevism is indescribable. Any free expression was prohibited. Any movement banned. Everything in nature that was beautiful, good, and free was destroyed. Everything created by God was exterminated. They took the blessing from the land and the soul from the people. They reduced them to the level of animals, impotent, miserable, enslaved animals with no hope of life, who did not know if they would be alive tomorrow, who lived from hand to mouth and were happy only when someone killed them. Hell can be no worse than this Soviet paradise. There is no hope of salvation. What Bolshevism has done to humanity is a sin against God, a crime one cannot begin to understand. Every German who formerly thought Bolshevism was a worthy idea and who threatened we national socialists with death and bloodshed only because we didn't believe in this nonsense should be ashamed. We were right. We are all shaken and moved as we face this misery, this suffering, this hopeless Bolshevist life. They stole everything from these people except the very air they breathed. Of course, the Jew would steal that if he couldn't sell it back to us. The land they inherited from their fathers became a collective, the property of the state, and they became slaves worse than those of the darkest Middle Ages in Germany. They had a tiny plot of land of their own. 
And even that was heavily taxed. They had to report to the collective's commissars each morning, work the whole day, even Sunday, with no free time. They belonged to the state. They were supposedly paid, but rarely saw the money. They got 33 kopecks a day, about a third of a mark. They owned no plow, no spade, no wagon, no yoke. Everything supposedly belonged to everyone. Everything belonged to the state. The Jews and party bigwigs lived in prosperity. The farmers had only hunger, misery, work, and death. No one felt himself responsible for the soil. No one felt the love we Germans have for our homeland, for the soil that is ours. The knowledge of blood and soil had died out. I spoke with 30-year-olds who did not understand the concept of property. They had been educated in Soviet schools. That explains why they had no sense of culture, no need for it. Their homes are empty, cold, and desolate, much poorer than in Poland. No pictures, no flowers break the desolation. The art of cooking also disappeared, given the food shortages. The daily diet consists of milk and bread, along with a bit of honey and a few potatoes. When one sees this dismal poverty, one is reminded that these Bolshevist animals wanted to bring wanted to bring culture to us industrious, clean, and creative Germans. How God has blessed us. How justified is the Führer's claim to European leadership. The poorest German village is a pearl in comparison to these ruined Russian villages. Sometimes, as I face the thousands of murdered people that we found in the cities and villages, and in the numerous occasions where we found women and children wailing over the corpses of their family members, or when they asked us to free their men who had been hauled off just before we arrived. I see the Fuhrer before me. He saved an enslaved and raped humanity, giving it once more divine freedom and the blessing of a worthy existence. The last and deepest reason for this war is to restore the natural and godly order, what which the Jew is forever against. It is a battle against slavery, against Bolshevist insanity. I am proud, deeply proud, that I may fight against this Bolshevist monster, fighting once again the enemy I fought to destroy during the hard years of struggle in Germany. I am proud of the wounds I suffered during the election battles in Germany against the communists, and I am proud of my new wounds and of the medal that I now wear. It is as if the people here are awakening from a deep sleep. They cannot yet believe in their new freedom. They were liberated by the Germans, and, and they accepted the Germans as liberators. They do not know where to begin. They sit down and wait for orders. Now they have them. Go back to work. Harvest the fields. Now you have your own home. That is what all the posters say. And one sees the masses at work in the fields. Man and nature are free again. God has his place once more. His eternal order has been restored. We National Socialist soldiers of Adolf Hitler have restored the godly order. Though some call us heathens, that is the way life is. And what did those who spoke about God do? Ask them. Amazing. I mean, what more can be said? That The Bolshevik state was a living nightmare, a veritable hell on earth. 
and the U.S. propped up that hell on earth, subsidized it, underwrote all their costs, and equipped their entire military. And gave it the rest of Europe that they couldn't have. <laughs> they gave it all of Eastern Europe at the end of the war. And, 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 and the Jews, the Soviet Jews, created a desolation and called it, well, well, they called it a worker's paradise. And yet all these Occupy Wall Streeters walk around with their red flags talking about the Soviet Union. If they were in the Soviet Union, they'd probably all be on gulags or dead by now. Although I'm sure some of them being Jews would be party bigwigs and commissars. Well, absolutely. They don't know history, so they don't know what they're asking for. Or the ones that do know history, they're asking to become commissars. Well, well, they're usually the Jews among them that are driving the, the, the sheep to slaughter, right? Mm-hmm. I have to wonder, though, if they're really sheep, since didn't um, Jesus say that the sheep would not follow anyone but the shepherd, and that, they, that, that the sheep recognize the voice of the shepherd? Well, well, absolutely, but if they don't hear it, that they'll, they'll be led to follow all the false shepherds, right? All right, I'll, I'll do the next letter, or the next few. Houses and roads. The housing question was a favorite theme of Bolshevist agitation in Europe. They made vehement attacks on workers' housing. Regardless of economic conditions, they demanded a room for every German. So-called communist artists portrayed the misery and ill health of overpopulated workers' districts. The Soviet Union had 25 years to realize this point in their program. They had the raw materials and workers, as their armaments program demonstrated. Nothing stood in the way of establishing paradise in their corner of the world. But with the exception of the Jews and party bigwigs, the soldiers write that everyone in the Soviet Union lives, quote, worse than the animals, quote, do by us. And I'd like to point out, you know, that the Soviets... In 1941, had something like 40,000 aircraft, 35 to 40,000 tanks, nine to 10 million soldiers in arms. You know, each with rifles, and then of course machine guns, maybe for every 10 or 20 men, mortars, artillery. Can you imagine that the good things they could have done to build up their their country and build up infrastructure and roads and hospitals and schools and churches and playgrounds and and all, all the food distribution they could have undertaken? Instead, they they squandered their natural wealth on building up a massive arsenal. Well, well, right. That's because they wanted to conquer the entire world with that arsenal. They wanted to start by conquering all of Europe. The intention is very clear in, in all of the, the, the statements of, of the internationals and, and the Soviets and, and the, um, the Soviet leaders. And they wanted to simply use the Soviet system to, so that the, this certain class of Jews and, and some of their Shabez Goyim could rule over all of the other peoples of Europe and hold them all as slaves so that they would hold all of the property and all of the common and especially the Christian Europeans would be little more than slaves. Exactly. And when you confront the Jews with this, they claim the Soviet Union had to arm up because it had to confront fascism. Well, What's their excuse? Well, they have to lie or they're exposed as the devil. They have to lie. They have to try to keep the lies going. They have to try to keep clouding the facts of history because that's the, they have no excuse. What can they say? That there's nothing to say. Stalin wanted to rule the world, and if FDR had lived a little longer, maybe he would have given him North America. Right. Right, absolutely. Unimaginable misery. Staff Sergeant Kurt Hummel. Military post number L31605 LGPA Paris to his local group. 
northern Russia, 12 August 1941. Bolshevist conditions are indescribable. I had never imagined that such misery was possible. People here know nothing about electric lights, radio, newspapers, and the like. One can't call what they live in houses. There are only shanties with rotten straw roofs. Huge neglected fields lay around. We haven't yet even found a small shop. This is what people call the Soviet paradise. I wish the few outsiders who, were, who still remain in Germany could be shipped here. There is misery wherever one looks. One has to see it to realize how beautiful Germany is. The main roads are like paths. Soldier Heinrich Starr, Starr tells his workmates at the Hamburg Hochbahn AG about conditions frequently mentioned in other letters as well. The roads, we in the infantry are probably the best judge of good and bad roads since we have to march for kilometer after kilometer on them. Here, too, the Soviets haven't lifted a finger. The main roads are no better than field paths. Believe me, my dear comrades, the soldiers have many a justifiable curse after marching 40 or 50 kilometers on such a road. Besides, it is 30 to 35 degrees Celsius in the shade, and huge clouds of dust make it almost impossible to breathe. Swamps, forests, and bad roads make military action unpleasant, but we keep moving forward. And later, I will post some pictures of Soviet roads back then in the 40s and still today in the 90s and 2000s on the um, MK site. I'll send them to you and you can post them. I'd just like to comment that there are basically two campaigning seasons in Russia. You either campaign in the summer or the winter, because if you try in the fall, the autumn rain will turn the roads literally into a sea of mud, two to three feet deep of mud. And the point is um, trucks overturn, tanks get stuck, nothing can move through that kind of mud. You have to wait until the winter freezing comes and the mud freezes. And then when the ice and the snow melt in the spring, the roads are even worse than they are in the autumn from the rain. So the melting snow and ice turn the roads basically into an ocean of mud. And it's not uncommon for off-road vehicles to just get stuck in a routine drive in Russia. I'll post some pictures and Bill can get them up on the MK site so people can see that Bolshevism was always underdeveloped in Russia. They always neglected their infrastructure. It was bad in the 40s, and it remains bad even today. The legacy of the Soviet roads lives on. Chapter 4, Rule by Bigwigs and Jews. The Soviet Union was, in fact, a paradise for one group, the Jews. Even at times when, for foreign policy reasons, Jews were less evident in the government, or when they ruled through straw men, the Jews were always visible in the middle and lower levels of the administration. During the whole period of the Red Dictatorship, they were the beneficiaries. This was clearest in the small nations that the Soviet Union was using to prepare for its attack on the Greater German Reich after the outbreak of Churchill's War, above all in the Baltic states. Aside from their unlimited desire for money, their dirty behavior and their perverse thirst for revenge, our soldiers above all encountered Jews as the sadistic organizers of mass murder and atrocities. Many details have to be eliminated since they cannot be printed in Germany, but this will be an idea of what was the routine day and even more at night in the dungeons of the Jewish GPU commissars. And the GPU, I believe, was their military intelligence, right? The front runner to the GRU? Yes. And I just want to comment, too. The NKVD and so on. And I want to comment, too, that a lot of people claim that you, you may get the left to occasionally admit, okay, there were a lot of Jews in the October Revolution in the 1919-1921, but Stalin was an anti-Semite who purged them all, and he, he was a, a Jew hater who allied with Hitler until Hitler betrayed him, blah, blah, blah. And they'll just continue on indefinitely with that line of crap. 
they're trying to distance themselves from the Soviet Union now because the Soviet Union has basically become discredited in the eyes of the mainstream West. So the Jews are trying to make it seem like they were victims of the Soviet Union rather than the perpetrators of the atrocities. The Jews were the Soviet Union. They were integral to that system. Well, well absolutely. There's no doubt that they, um, that all of the Bolshevik leaders were Jews. All of the Bolshevik agitators in, in the beginning, and, and many of the other socialists, the, the, many of the Mensheviks, the, 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 the various other socialist parties, which were, were vying, originally vying for a piece of the political pie or for control with the Bolsheviks, that, that the Bolsheviks eliminated. It, it was one Jew gang against another, right? Absolutely. They, they were all vying and, and competing with each other for control of the nation, and, and the Bolsheviks, that they, they quickly eliminated all of the competition because they were probably the most well-financed and the most ruthless of, of the group. Just like the um, Dutch ambassador wrote, that they, they all have the same ultimate end goal, and the Mensheviks are no different from the Bolsheviks. They're all Jewish agitators. Right. He was warning the Western governments against supporting any of the non-Bolshevik socialist groups, because, as, as he keenly observed, they, they were all the same. They, they were all criminals, and they were all the same. Well, I mean, if we have a, a limited territory and we have a drug empire, there's only so much turf to go around. There are going to be turf wars. Just because I'm fighting one cartel doesn't mean I'm not a cartel myself. So that's what we see. We see the Jews are basically fleas, ticks, and parasites, and they're competing for a room on the host. There's only, well, so much, there's only so much, you know, room on the dog. And, and the Bolsheviks won out. The, the, this, well, well, I don't know what you should call them Bolsheviks. By this time, Stalinist Trotskyites, the, the Stalin-Trotsky party won out. Or just the Jews won. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, the Jews were going to win that no matter which way the pie was split because the Rothschilds were behind it all, in, in, in my own purview. The only way the Jews would have lost is if the White Army had somehow won, but the West saw to it well, that couldn't happen. Well, well, right. If the West had supported the White Army, it would have won. The West what was well. I I really believe that there was treachery behind the scenes, and, and the, the the House of Rothschild, the bankers in London, who financed the Bolshevik Revolution, they wanted the Bolsheviks to win. That's why the Bolsheviks won. And I want to point out too, the German army and the Austro-Hungarian army had a huge swath of land in the Western Russian Empire under the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. And the Allies, the Western powers, made the Germans abandon that and hand it over to the Bolsheviks. So that, that basically gave a great boost to the Bolsheviks. If the German army had remained in place, they could have supported the White Army and they would have crushed the Bolsheviks in 1919. Right. Absolutely. The, the German capitulation at the end of the war did not help matters. Absolutely. It didn't help matters for Russia. Let's put it that way. It didn't help matters for Russia anymore. It helped matters for Germany. Or the world. But that, again, was, was also due to tre the treachery, I think, of, of Max of Baden. Mm -hmm. The Jew was a bloodsucker. Medical Corporal Paul Lenz, military post number 714628 Posen, to the local group of the NSDAP Arneberg. Only a Jew can be a Bolshevist. For these bloodsuckers, there is nothing better to be. For there is then nothing to stop them. Whenever one spits... 
Wherever one spits, there is a Jew, whether in a city or a village. As far as I know, we ask the people wanting to know the truth, not a single Jew ever worked in the workers' paradise. Even the littlest bloodsucker had a post with big privileges. He lived in the best buildings, if one can call them buildings. The real workers lived in small buildings, or better, in animal stalls, just like the day laborers in old Russia. It makes no difference whether one is in a village or in a city like Minsk, with over 300,000 inhabitants. The stalls are everywhere. Even before the war, most workers knew nothing but hunger, misery, and slavery. Something Some may be interested to know that there were theaters, operas, and such, even big buildings for them, but only those with money got in, and they were the bloodsuckers and their lackeys. And I'd well, like to no, point out that... The war here, he means before World War II, right? He, exactly, he means- and I... I wanted to just point out that Minsk at the time was 50% Jewish, according to Wikipedia. So, so, so in reality, probably 80% Jewish. Exactly. Right? If they're admitting the 50%, we should just add 20 or 30 to that. <laughs> we should add a percentage anyway. Only we, the Jews lived well. Soldier Reinhold Manka, military post number 02179, to Supervisor Bormann at the Otto Kloss Company in Hamburg, Dunisburg. 8 August 1941. Dear Herman, you have to have seen what people called the Bolshevist paradise. It is poor, Herman, incredibly poor. Only the Jews and functionaries lived well. The people didn't earn enough to buy a pair of socks or anything like that. They earned one ruble a day, about 10 German fennig, and, for, and that for a full day's work. Only the Jews lived well. Each city is about 40% Jewish. The Jews and Bolshevists hauled every Latvian who was still around out of his house before the Germans arrived. They stole the valuables, doused the houses with gasoline, and set them on fire. The Latvians who did not want to go with the Bolshevists had their hands and feet cut off, their tongues slit, and then were left behind. They nailed men and even children to the walls. These are the things we have seen. If these criminals had reached our country, they would have torn us apart. That is clear, but the Latvians did take their revenge. The comrades from the Kloss factory should come here and see what 25 years of communism have done. There was only poverty, misery, and more misery. Old sod huts, a cow, and a pig, that is all they have. In Germany, people talked about how good the workers here had it. Well, we read the Russian number one report. Um, a couple of years ago, and, and on your program, and, and we um, we saw in the Russian Number One report how instrumental Latvian and Chinese mercenaries were in the success of the Bolsheviks over the White Army and any other resistance that they met. Hmm. And this is how the Latvians were paid back for, for their for their, um, their cooperation. By the by, the Jews themselves, by the, wonder, by the Soviets themselves. Is Spielberg going to make a movie about the Bolsheviks hacking Latvians to death? Probably not. Not unless he finds somehow that he can make the Latvians into Jews. Hmm. It seems wherever you have Bolsheviks and Jews in power, they inevitably hack people to pieces like they're just demons tearing at somebody. You know what I mean? It's like a, a wild dog mauling someone to pieces. Well, well, Americans haven't had the taste of, of, of the real Jewish spirit, and, and that's what it is. It's a destructive, macabre, evil, sinister spirit. And, and as soon as they are firm in their upper hand in this country and, and these other races, and, and it's progressing more and more towards it every year, 
there is going to be carnage here that is just incredible. And the media is basically, by the way that they report all, the ne- all of the crimes against Negroes, and, and even when mestizos um, perpetrate those crimes, they try to claim that white people did it, and they never report Negro crime. The media is actually, the Jewish-controlled media in this country today is fomenting a war between whites and Negroes. And, and then you'll see the, the, how, how big, how, just, just how savage they really are. Well, I wouldn't call it a war because we're not fighting back. I would call it a massacre. Well, well right. It, it may very, if white people don't wake up, it may very well be a massacre, yes. It seems to me though, that we can see the raw sadism in these Jews. They really have the spirit of their father in them, don't they? And the proof of it's all over the media and all over our history, recent history, yes. And, and yep. as you read jo- Josephus' description of Jerusalem during the rebellion against Rome, Jerusalem was, that the, they, they showed all the same traits there. The Edomite Jews had showed all the same traits there and, and, and the ruthlessness and the savagery that they showed in Europe in the 19th and, and early 20th centuries, without a doubt. Well, what was it we covered in Russia number one? They were forcing women into free love communes and bullwhipping those that wouldn't comply. They were gouging out eyes, hacking out, you know, hacking people's hands off, chopping their feet off, beheading people, drowning them in their own blood, throwing them into coal mines and blowing up the entrances. Absolutely. And, and funny thing, the History Channel claimed that as the German army marched through Belgium in World War One, this was a documentary I saw about 16 or 18 months ago, they said that the German army marched through one town, I forget the name, but it was on a river. They said that the um, soldiers killed 600 residents in the village, burned the church to the ground, raped and murdered all the nuns, bayoneted them, and then killed the priest and the bishop and then threw all the bodies in the river and then marched over the river, you know, singing German war songs. And I, I turned and said to my dad, you know, that sounds like the Jews are talking about something they did, only it happened in Russia in 1919, and they did it to white Christians. Well, well all, of the, all of the crimes, and, and this stuff is documented. It's documented in Russia number one. It's documented in, in the, um, the United States Memorandum on Bolshevism. It, it's documented in, in several papers that, that are on the, um, on the Mein Kampf Project site at Christagenia that are all original sources. The, the revolution in Russia, that the um, what, which was published by National Geographic, American Jews in the Bolshevik oligarchy from Literary Digest, March 1919. That, that's an original source article. The Bolsheviki, who they are and what they believe from from from, an, from a um, and this is very um, revealing of the Jewish nature of the Bolsheviks, and this was from an, a. a publication called World's Work, which was basically a socialist publication, and it was published in October of 1918, and they fully revealed in October of 1918 that these Bolsheviks were all Jews, and their criminal nature is very obvious and fully evident in many original publications from 1918, 1919, 1920, 1921. And we have those, I mean, this history should, should not be disputed. Now, the, um, it's, it's very clear that these Jews were a crime ring that had conquered Russia. And they were a crime ring. They set themselves up as a Soviet government 
and and created a, a, a world um, council of Soviets and, and Republic of Soviet, and, and they used all these nice official-sounding governmental names, but they were only names which were layered on top of a crime ring. The, the Jews are a worldwide, they are history's oldest crime ring, and in 1917, 1918, they conquered Tsarist Russia, and they looted and pillaged it, and, and basically, through other more peaceful means, they've conquered the, the, the rest of the West. But the Tsar and, and Adolf Hitler would not kowtow, they would not bend over and, and surrender to the Jews, and for that reason, they had to be destroyed with violence. While, while the rest of the Western nations, that they just rolled over and, and let the Jews win and, and let the Jews prevail. And they do it to this day. But the end result is not going to be any any better. You were saying. Bolshevist atrocities. Germans in general, and German soldiers in particular, do not take revenge on defenseless opponents or even torture them. The opposite is the case. The danger is that German generosity will too quickly lead us to forget our victorious position and presume our own decent attitudes and behavior on the part of the enemy, whether soldier or civilian. That is why news of atrocities that our enemies commit against Germans or the civilians under their rule are often greeted with a certain skepticism. One does not believe others can do what one is oneself incapable of doing. We remember that reports of the bestial brutalities committed by Poles against ethnic Germans, especially in Bromberg, were thought to be exaggerated. Meanwhile, the German people have learned the truth. And like you pointed out, all of these atrocities that were mostly committed by Jews the Germans were later blamed for by the Jews as committing themselves, right? Well, the, the Germans were blamed for the massacre of the Polish officers at Katyn Forest, and the Soviets claimed it happened in 41 or 42 after Germany overran the region, but the Red Cross investigated and said it happened in 1940 when it was still under Soviet occupation. You know, some Polish soldiers were keeping diaries, and they found a diary on one corpse, and the entries abruptly ended in mid-1940, and there was blood on the stuff. So you, you tell me who, who perpetrated the Katyn massacre, and just recently the Soviet, or the Russian government admitted it. It took them something like, what, 70 years to get around to admitting their responsibility for the Katyn massacre. And the American left still won't acknowledge it. I mean, Putin admits it, Yeltsin admits it, but somehow that's not good enough for them. It was really Hitler. They're just um, neo-fascists who betrayed the Soviet Union, and they're lying. And and the American left that they they prove themselves to be not American at all, at all but but traitors who hate the white race. That's what mm-hmm. they are. What, whether they happen to be white or not, they're, they they hate the white race. Exactly, just like the German Communist Party taking its orders from Moscow and Lenin. It's not really the German Communist Party. It's the German branch of the Soviet Communist Party. Right. So I would say that there's really no such thing as the American left. It's the American branch of the international Jewish Zionist left. Well, well that's a, a much more accurate label, yes. But every bloody and sadistic butchery in human history is thrown into the shadows by that which German soldiers have already seen with their own eyes in the Soviet Union. As they themselves write, they will never forget it until they die. And I'd like to say that I don't think Hitler was exaggerating when he said that one of the reasons for going to war with the Soviet Union, the main reason, was to stop the second horde of Genghis Khan from being unleashed on the West. That's no exaggeration, is it? Well, well, no, it's not an exaggeration. And that's the very thing 
that the Russians, well, well, the Russians, that the Jews, the Soviet Jews were threatening for many years leading up to the, the final pull of the trigger at Operation Barbarossa. They were threatening for many years. I mean, there's a quote that's pretty popular on the Internet, and, and it's a true quote. And it's from, from the mouth of Lenin himself, who, who claimed that today we, we finance a revolution in Russia with German money, and then tomorrow we finance a revolution in Germany with Russian money. It, it was no secret right from the time of Lenin that the Bolsheviks wanted to conquer all of Europe. Well, they had the, the international, they believed in permanent revolution, world revolution, and they claim Hitler said, today we rule Germany, tomorrow the world, but they can never source that quote. No, they can never source that quote, and, and it was actually the mentality of the Soviets. It was the mentality of the Bolsheviks. It was Stalin's mentality. It was Trotsky's mentality. It was Stalin, it, it, and it was Lenin's mentality. And, and, and it was their mentality all through the, the so-called Cold War, right, that they, that they saber-rattled that. They were really under the control of the Rothschilds, and they were used to scare and, and, and to help pillage so, so that the Jewish bankers could help pillage the West, basically, as well as the East, and control both sides through the, um, the dialectic. That there's no, that there should be no doubt to any observer of, of history in the 20th century. To continue, we must not forget that these atrocities are incompetent work in the eyes of leading Bolshevists. Soldiers and commissars lacked the time during their retreats to use the bestial methods of GPU murder to torture their victims to the last. When those in the Kremlin read the atrocity reports in this booklet, read the atrocity reports in this booklet, they will be pleased that only a small part of their terrible crimes have become known to the civilized world. Still, the dim rays of light that have reached Bolshevism's torture chambers have revealed such frightening pictures that we are deeply shaken as we read these reports. And all of those crimes were later blamed on the Germans, like the Caden massacre. They, they were all blamed on the German people. And the Bolsheviks have never been portrayed in the Western media as criminals that I've ever seen. Well, as far as I'm concerned, they were a bandit regime. Diplomatic recognition should never have been extended to them, and we should never have had an embassy anywhere in the Eastern Bloc. Well, well, right, and, and, but media and academics, even to this very day, make excuses for Stalin, for, for the so-called um, famine in the Ukraine in the 1930s. They still make excuses for him. There was a mainstream History Channel historian. He's been dead for about 10 years or so, but he was on a documentary. I forget his name. He was saying that it was far better for Poland to wind up under the um, Soviet rule and to be liberated by Stalin and the Red Army than to remain in the, the horrors of Nazism. He said that Poland was going to be exterminated by the Nazis and that the, the Soviets saved it by liberating it, and that the, it was the best thing that could have happened for Poland in those circumstances, to be liberated by Stalin. And I wonder, is this guy actually a historian, or is he just a, a mouthpiece for Pravda? Well, well, he's another mouthpiece for the leftist internationals you were describing a few minutes ago, right? I wonder what the Poles would say if you asked them, if you took a survey and asked the Poles, you know, in 1940s or 1950s, do you feel that Stalin should liberate Poland? I don't think the Poles wanted Stalin in, the, in, in their country. Children, well, well no, they were caught up in, in, in that same dialectic, right? They were caught up in the struggle between 
the, the Soviets, and, and the Germans were, were, were not... Yeah, you know, Poland had a lot of German territory, and, and they wanted to keep it. It's very clear they wanted to keep it. And, and they wanted more. And it's very clear that Germany wanted it back, right? And, and Poland was caught up in that, and, and it was somehow their own selfishness and greed what, which helped lead to what ultimately happened to Poland. But Poland was, was emboldened by the English and the French in order to do that to manipulate Germany into the war. Absolutely. To continue on, children slaughtered. Soldier Fred Faunbegel to his parents in Salzburg, 17741. Right, that's um, July 17. I wrote in my last two letters about Russian atrocities and could fill volumes more, but a bit more from the Soviet paradise. I'll especially tell you about things that happened in Lemberg, Tarnopol, and Tromborla. Tromborla is due south of Tarnopol. I saw the prisons in Lemberg. Lemberg is now um, Lav, isn't it, L-V-O-V? Lemberg was a city in Austria-Hungary, wasn't it, in the Ukrainian sector of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire? I believe so, yes. I saw the prisons in Lemberg and saw things that struck me deeply. There were men with their ears and noses cut off. They had, chilled, they had nailed children alive by their hands and feet to the wall, butchering them. The blood was ankle-deep. It didn't make any difference if they were alive or dead. They doused the piles of bodies with gasoline and set them on fire. The stench was terrible. I saw similar things in Tarnopol and Tromborla. In Tarnopol, seven Ukrainians were hauled out of their beds after the Germans had arrived. The next morning, their bodies were found in the woods, beaten until they were unrecognizable. I have seen all this myself. They are not matters I heard about. Feel free to tell them to others, particularly those who may still think well of the Soviet Union. I always think how fortunate we are that the scourge of humanity never made it into our country. I don't think that even years of preparation would make Germans capable of such atrocities. Well, well, you know, that scourge of humanity was awfully close in Bavaria in 1919. Exactly, with the Bavarian Soviet Republic. And I want to point out the demographics of Lemberg. Lemberg was about 50% Jewish. And you were mentioning the, the Bavarian Soviet Republic. If that had taken off, then all of this would have been happening in Germany since that point on. Well, well, absolutely. If it weren't for the Free Corps, it, it would have happened in Germany. Well, There's no doubt. In fact, and, and it would have spread from the Bavaria to the Rhineland and 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 Hesse and all of the other neighboring states. When the Jews seized Bavaria or Munich anyway in 1921. They had enemies lists drawn up, and they immediately started killing local religious leaders, business leaders, politicians, veterans, old people. And only the immediate and rapid intervention of the Fry Corps crushed their uprising in Munich, and then they were most, a lot of them were shot. They were put to death. And the American left and the Euro left and all the Jews, they claim, oh, they were persecuted and purged and victims of anti-Semitic violence. Well, what punishment is fitting for somebody who organizes a revolution in a city and then starts massacring old people, religious leaders, and business leaders? How do you deal with them? Do you just tell them to um, go do 100 hours of community service? Well, wait for the election, and we're going to vote you out of office or something. <laughs> Just like uh, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, they were shot by the um, Fry Corps units in Berlin during the Spartacus uprising, and then I think they were thrown in the what, what river or what canal was it? They, their bodies were thrown into some canal. But what, what do you do with people like that? They organized a revolution that killed thousands of people. They got just what they should have deserved. They're martyrs today, though, right? 
Exactly. But it's hard to say, especially to those that, those Germans that, that are marching around with flags celebrating the Soviet victory. Yeah. Exactly. But they should know if you live violently, you tend to die violently. So that there's no mercy, no pity for them. Orphans nailed to the wall and slaughtered. NCO K. Suffner, military post number 08070 to his workmates. There was a gray cloud over Lemberg as we arrived. The stench was scarcely tolerable. The Russians had been thrown out of the city after a hard battle. Two hours later, I found the source of the stench. The Bolshevists and Jews beastly murdered 12,000 Germans and Ukrainians. I saw pregnant women hanging by their feet in the GPU's prison. They had slit the noses, ears, eyes, fingers, hands, and arms and legs of other women. Some even had their hearts cut out. 300 orphans between the ages of 2 and 17 had been nailed to the wall and butchered. After they were done with the torture, they threw the people, most of whom were still alive, into a three-meter-deep pile in the basement, doused them with gasoline, and lit them on fire. It was terrible. We could not believe that, save, wait, is this a mistranslation? It it looks like a poor translation, or, or there's a typographical error here. Well, we could not believe that we we would have been saved if it, it's hard to determine what what he's trying to say. We, we could we, not believe that suffered if Bolshevism. We could not have been saved from this suffering if Bolshevism yeah, had reached us. That basically, that seems to be what he's saying. I can't determine what words could be missing there, but what we could not believe that that we would have we we would not have suffered in this manner if Bolshevism had reached us. Is basically what it's saying. That this would he's basically saying that if Bolshevism had been able to progress through Western Europe, that these things which happened in the Ukraine would have happened in in Germany and Western Europe. There's no doubt. The complainers and know-it-alls that we still have in the Reich should see this. Then they should know what pure Bolshevism looks like. They would fall to their knees and thank the Fuhrer for saving Germany from such things. I and many other German soldiers have seen this. We all thank the Fuhrer that he let us see the Bolshevist paradise. We swear to extirpate this plague root and branch. Since I have some time today, I thought it my duty to write this so that my workmates at home can read it. We soldiers at the front have seen this with our own eyes. We will be able to tell a lot more later. We are fighting until final victory. And I'd like to take the time to point out, you know, a lot of these crimes are attributed to the German Einsatzgruppen, but what were they really doing? We'll see that in later letters. In later letters, it's raised that um, the Einsatzgruppen were executing Jewish commissars who had been perpetrating these atrocities. So really, should we um, shed any tear? Do, do we need to apologize that German soldiers took revenge on these beasts and murderers and, and gave them firing squad executions? I mean, well, I wouldn't call it revenge. I would call it justice. They dispensed exactly. justice. They saw these crimes. They knew who was guilty of them, and they dispensed justice. Exactly, and I, I guess you're right, justice, because if it were revenge, they would have doused them with gasoline and burned them alive. Instead, right. they shot them, which is more than they deserved. They, they were a lot more humane than, than the Jews had been. But we do see reports, though, of the Ukrainians organizing pogroms and butchering a lot of Jews. And I have to wonder, why did that happen? If, somebody, if, the, if the Jewish commissars come through your town and they hack half of your family to pieces and burn them alive with gasoline, and now the Red Army's pulled out and there's no one to protect the Jews, what goes around comes around. Terrible mutilations. Lieutenant Lawrence Wachter, to a political leader, in Nunkirchen, 
20 of August 1941. I really can't describe what we saw in Lemberg. It is much, much worse than the German newspapers were able to describe. One has to have seen it. Even the stench of corpses, noticeable a long way outside the prison walls, was enough to make one ill. And the scene itself, hundreds of murdered men, women, and children, hideously mutilated. Men had their eyes poked out, a pastor with his belly slit open, and the body of a slaughtered baby stuffed in. I could tell you worse stories, but even these upset me, and I'm used to such things by now. This sounds like Russia number one. Yeah, yes, in many respects, it does sound like the um, like the Jewish savagery that was described in Russia number one. And these and stories are credible. They all seem credible. They all corroborate each other, and they're all straightforward. None of that Jewish nonsense. Oh, the Germans lined us all up, shot eight thousand people. They they missed me. They they buried us four feet down. I dug myself out and ran out, and blah blah blah. Somehow I made it from the Soviet Union to America. Well, well, it seems to me a lot of these soldiers that that they were skeptical of what they were being told by their leadership under the National Socialists. That they were skeptical of the propaganda being dispensed concerning the 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 the, the ethics and, and the morals of the Soviets by Joseph Goebbels and, and the, you know the rest of the the National Socialist propaganda machine. And, and when they actually came to saw it firsthand, they were grateful that they were told these things, that they, were, that they could see what they were saved from when the National Socialists came to power. And that's why these men are, are in very, thanking the Fuhrer. That, that's why they're thanking the Fuhrer, because they saw how bad things would have been for Germany if this communism had come to Germany. It's very plain. Absolutely. Chapter, chapter six. six. I, I'm oh. going to read chapter okay. six. Uh, and and let me, this is entitled "What Soldiers Want to Do with Grumblers." And, and let me tell you, when, when men face adversity, what, whether it be in prison, what, whether it be in the military, whether it be in a cold Boy Scout camp, yet you know, men hate real men hate grumblers, and, and there's a reason for it because they're destroyers of of morale. In the midst of all these experiences, observations, and facts, nearly every soldier's letter expresses the wish that the complainers and know-it-alls should see what they have seen. Everyone who has not yet understood the greatness of our age and the significance of this greatest of all battles should see it for himself for a week. Countless millions of our people do their duty and sacrifice in good spirits. And that's what men should do when they oh, face adversity. Well. I saw we we, we um I, I must have missed one. I missed one where they talk about the culprits being shot. Should we go back and cover that real quick? Oh no no. That they accept the inconveniences of the war cheerfully, but even the most willing occasionally tire of the necessary burdens of everyday life during war. These soldiers' letters are good medicine in such moments. The facts that German soldiers report home that there is no comparison between the war-related inconveniences we endure and the terrible conditions of perpetual misery that prevail even during peace in the Soviet Union. All the soldiers at the front wish that every German who even for a moment loses his energy and enthusiasm would have the chance to gain a personal impression of a country that despite the greatest natural resources, and despite 25 years of uninterrupted rule by a government, 
has the worst conditions in the world. Conditions that can only be compared with the very worst English colonies. Looking into this abyss will banish all discontent. Here are five, two, two of five of the excerpts from letters in this chapter. The, the translator has only provided two of them. The first one is, every critic of our efforts should be sent here. In other words, if you're a critic back home of the war effort on the Eastern Front, you should come see it for yourself, and you would realize how necessary and what a noble battle it is. Soldier Walter Sparath writes to the NSDAP County office, Hamburg 6. And, and there's no date on this. Everything I have seen of the so-called workers' paradise is everything but lovely. One should send every citizen who even slightly criticizes our efforts here, he would thank the Fuhrer, unless he were a Jew, he would thank the Fuhrer in the movement that these conditions are not found in our fatherland. Animals by us live in better conditions than the people here. Our successes so far have been great, and we will not stop until we have rooted out this evil root and branch, which will be a blessing for European culture and humanity. All of these letters also sum up the, 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 um, the truth in the fact that what the Jews did to the Ukraine between 1917 and 1933, that was the real Holocaust, right? And, and actually between 1917 and, and 1941, that was the real Holocaust. The second excerpt, the people's eyes are being opened. This is from NCO Albert Roth, military post number 27643, to his wife in Kostermansfeld, or Kostermansfeld, and, and I won't try to read the abbreviations of the rest of the address. It was written July 24th, 1941. And, and this is a very small fragment of his letter. Even without the war, the people here were impoverished and exhausted, only the bigwigs lived well in palaces. Now the people's eyes are being opened. Anyone in Germany who still does not believe in communism's terrible crimes should see for himself and listen to the people. Happy Germany, as I always say. Now, now the next chapter is chapter 7, but maybe you want to go back and, and talk about the mutilation, the, the record of the mutilation. Corpses defiled. Sergeant Paul Rubelt, military post number 34539F, to Miss Greta Ager, Lebring 71 Steiermark, July 6, 1941. I was in Lemberg yesterday and saw a bloodbath. It was terrible. Many had their skin stripped off. Men were castrated. Their eyes poked out. Arms or legs chopped off. Some were nailed to the wall. Thirty to forty were sealed into a small room and suffocated. About 650 people in this area must have died in such ways. The stench can be endured only if one smokes a cigarette and keeps a handkerchief over one's nose. The Jews did most of it. Now they have to dig the graves. The culprits will be shot. Many already died because of the stench. In this city, they even opened graves and defiled the corpses. It is terrible. One can hardly believe that such people exist. Although we see today there are even some people that talk about, you know, gelding people, mutilating children, chopping people up, and unleashing their warlords on the world. And they're clearly Jews. Absolutely. It's, they, they prove time and again that they are indeed the children of the devil. When the Jewish role is actually and honestly examined in history, 
we will see that the Jewish people, just as Christ told them, are of the devil. They are the children of, of, of everything that, that, that rebels against God. They are the children of Satan. There is no doubt. Chapter 7, Former Communists Talk. Berlin was once a communist fortress, and there were also supposedly impregnable red bastions in Hamburg, Saxony, the Ruhr, and Munich. All of them were overthrown by the Free Corps, right? There were some in the ranks of German communism who honestly believed in the blessings of Bolshevism. They were ready to serve as Moscow's foreign legion and deny their German fatherland to build a life of dignity and beauty for the working class of the whole world. The international, right? Adolf Hitler's powerful idea has long driven criminal communist thinking from the minds of every normal person in Germany. Among the millions of German soldiers who are now fighting as loyal followers of the Fuhrer in Russia, there are certainly some who can remember some of the promises made by the Bolshevist traitors to the working class. These citizens are the ones most shocked by, by what they see in the Soviet Union. Many a letter writer to his wife, his local group leader, or his SA leader, mentions that he was formerly a communist. I mentioned one who served two and a half years in prison, but now volunteered for the army, even though he has seven children. He wants to atone for his sins. Now he writes back home as one who is fully converted. We have omitted the names of some of the writers, since we were not sure whether a brave soldier doing his duty would want thousands of strangers to read that he was once a communist. We have the originals. Anyone who doubts the genuineness of these letters can receive the names and addresses of the writers if he has good reason. The Fuhrer spoke from the hearts of these soldiers when he said of the Soviet Union on the 3rd of October, 1941, it is a country that our soldiers are coming to know after 25 years of Bolshevism. This I know. Anyone who went there with even the slightest sympathy for communism, even the, in the most idealistic sense, is cured. You can be sure of that. The Soviet Union is absolutely miserable. This is from a pilot, Flyer W.M., from, from Rez Lazaret Saldweddle to his cell leader, Schroeder, or, or maybe I'm butchering that too. I have seen the wonderful workers' paradise in the Soviet Union with all its terrible misery and wish that those who thought differently could spend a few weeks here to see and experience what we have. The misery and horror of Bolshevism is terrible. I hope that volunteering for our proud army may atone for my earlier sins and that when I am back home, you, dear party member, will accept me as an honest person. In that hope, I send you my warmest greetings. Heil Hitler, signed W.M. Another oh. letter. And about the city of Lemberg, Wikipedia claims that the NKVD massacred or organized a prison massacre and got rid of a, a few hundred very dangerous, dangerous inmates. And that when the Germans came into the city, they killed almost all the Polish professors and anybody likely to resist. And they claimed that the German soldiers beat these people with hammers and then buried them alive and killed several hundred people the first day they came into the city. Yeah, you know what makes these German letters a lot more credible mm -hmm. is that they were written 
before the outcome of the war, right? And it's doubtless that this book was published in German long before the outcome of the war. So there's no political agenda behind these letters. Why would someone fabricate an atrocity hoax while hostilities are ongoing in a letter to a family member? Which you don't see, though. I'd like to see a letter from a German soldier saying, we shot 20,000 Jews last week, and we've been smashing babies against trees, and, you know, let's go kill another 20,000. You know, hurrah, let's, you know, let's go bayonet some more. One writing, you know, I've been drinking myself stupid. I can't believe, you know, the Fuhrer's ordered us to do these horrible things, blah, blah, blah. But we never see any of those letters, do we? Well, not unless you read the Nuremberg trial transcripts, right? Hmm. And, and the forced confessions, right? Well, you, you know, the Soviet judge at Nuremberg was the one who presided over the show trials and the Great Purge of '36 in Moscow. Why not be rewarded with Nuremberg? Okay, the next letter. Earlier fans of the Soviet Union are quickly cured. This is from Corporal Otto Klein, military post number 18, to the factory leadership at the Conrad Schultz factory in Barmbeck. This is written from Russia, August 8, 1941. Anyone who earlier had different opinions of the Soviet Union is quickly cured of them here. The poverty is terrible. Not even the farmers have anything to eat. They beg from us. There are lice and filth everywhere. One has to be careful one doesn't get them from the inhabitants. These people don't know anything else. They sit in their huts, and remove lice from each other. They don't mind if anyone watches. I have had my fill of this worker's paradise. We'll be glad to be out of here. In the past, we saw pictures of malnourished children. They were not exaggerated. One can't believe it if one hasn't been here. Another letter worse than we imagined. Corporal J.F., military post number 26280 to his local group, written August 3, 1941. This is one paragraph excerpt. What we have seen of the so-called Soviet paradise is is worse than we ever imagined. Anyone back home who still has any doubts should come here. All his doubts will disappear. Everywhere we go, the people are happy to be freed from Bolshevism and look to the future with confidence. We soldiers can say to those back home that he, meaning Hitler, saved Germany and all of Europe from the Red Army. The battle is hard, but we know what we are fighting for, and confident of the Fuhrer, we will win in the hopes of the victorious return. Heil Hitler, Corporal J.F. Would you like to read Chapter 8? Chapter 8, Germany, the most beautiful homeland. No one has greater right to evaluate a country than the soldier who is ready to give his life for it. We know that German soldiers would fight and die for Germany, even if it were the poorest and most wretched land on earth. In the communist Bolshevist paradise, however, the German soldier learned what Germany really means. An employed man in Germany lives better than a lord in comparison to a Bolshevist worker. One letter said, and we know, that many communists who fled to the Soviet Union would prefer to spend a long time in a German prison than to live in Bolshevist freedom. The letters are all a proud and confident affirmation of the greater German fatherland. Germany, the most beautiful country in the whole wide world. Corporal Karl Prox to County Propaganda Leader Friedrich Grosse-Strelitz in the East. 
12-8-1941. August 12th. Yeah, uh, they're doing the European system where the day comes first. Sorry about that. 13 letters. We have hard weeks behind us and are proud of our success against the Soviet foe. We now have time to recover from our exertions. I am proud to be a German and to be a member of our wonderful army. Greet everyone back home. I am a long way away. Tell them that Germany is the most beautiful, cultivated country in the whole world. Everyone should be happy to be a German and serve a Fuhrer like Adolf Hitler. I want to point out that it seems to me the German army is the only one in recent history that assembled basically for the defense of Western Christian civilization and fought as a moral, cultured, civilized force, while, you know, Americans that have this very unrealistically positive view of their own military in World War II, they should consider that American soldiers in Europe were delivered 50 million condoms a month and then draw their own conclusions about the um, conduct of those soldiers. Well, well, absolutely. Why would you send soldiers 50 million condoms a month if you weren't actually encouraging them to go out and rape whoever they wanted? And I'm sure most of those men had wives back home, too, didn't they? Right. So, so much for the greatest generation. Well, well, you know, I'm trying hard to think of when an American army ever went to war for the defense of Christian civilization. I don't think it's ever happened. They've only gone to war to expand the internationalist agenda of the Jewish merchant classes and, and the bankers. That They've never gone to war for the defense of Christian civilization. They may have been told that in the propaganda leading up to the years 1914 and, and 1941, but, but they've never done that. I guess 1776, 1812, I mean, that's how far back you have to go. Well, well right, and they weren't really defending Christianity back then. They, they, they were struggling for independence from, from a, a Christian tyrant, right? A, a man who was, who, who was actually... Um, in bed with the bankers of London, but but who was trying to maintain a tyranny over over the colonies? But the, but that really wasn't the defense of Christianity. It was to escape the the, the tyranny of of the English king. But the um, American forces have never ever fought a war for the defense of, of Western civilization, of Christian values, or, or anything of the sort that they're supposed to stand for. They fought wars to destroy Christian countries such as Serbia. They bombed the Serbs because the Serbs dared to defend their homeland against Albanian Muslims. Well, well, right. And there again, it was in the interests of the Jewish bankers of the city in New York. Mm. Chapter 9, Thanks to the Fuhrer. Some Germans on 22nd of June 1941 were not aware of the enormous danger threatening the Reich. Soldiers, in other words, the events leading up to Operation Barbarossa, right? Soldiers facing the enemy were the first to realize it. They are the best judges of the terrible misfortune that the Fuhrer saved Germany and Europe from. Nearly every letter expresses deep thanks to the Fuhrer. The first letter, the Fuhrer saw danger saw the danger in time. This is from a soldier named P. Wook, military post number 33, to his comrades at home. Whatever it may cost, it is good that the Fuhrer saw the danger in time. The battle had to come. Germany, 
What would have happened to you if this bestial, stupid horde had poured into our homeland? We have all sworn allegiance to Adolf Hitler, and we must fulfill it for our own good wherever we may be. The pamphlet, and, and that's the end of the letters, the pamphlet ends with the following summary. These letters close with the affirmations of loyalty to the Fuhrer and attacks on a murderous Jewish Bolshevist swindle. We could only give a small selection of the thinking of German soldiers in this pamphlet. But these eyewitnesses, and there's of course only a sampling of them here in this translation, but these eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts are so persuasive and frightening in their truthfulness that no one can ignore them. Mr. Churchill, these are your Bolshevist allies for which you ask English churches to pray. Now, what a blasphemy that is. And for whom English workers should forge new weapons. This is the culture of those you are protecting. Mr. Roosevelt, if you want to save the world from Nazi barbarians with their help, with their help you are supposedly fighting for freedom and justice for smaller countries. And that, Mr. Stalin, is the judgment of millions of men on your Bolshevist policies, men whom you hope to recruit as cannon fodder for the Bolshevist world revolution. Things in the Soviet Union are far worse and terrifying than National Socialism ever claimed. And, and let me say real quick that the modern Jews, modern Jewish historians, modern Jewish pundits, don't they try pretty hard to separate Stalin from the legacy of the Bolsheviks before him? When I in fact, he was, an, he was only an extension of, of Lenin and Trotsky. He was no different. He, he was their son in, in, in every... Um, philosophical shade of meaning of the word. He, he was a product of Lenin and Trotsky and continued their agenda, right? And the modern Jews, they really do try to separate Stalin from Lenin and Trotsky. They try to make him look like he, he reformed the, on, on the, um, the faults of Lenin and Trotsky and, and was more modernist and, and more you know, an industrializer and, and many other well, at what cost, though? I mean, when you tell people, build this factory in the next six months, and if you don't build it, we'll kill all your family members, and then you work half the workers to death. Well, anybody can achieve results by just throwing people at the problem. Things in the Soviet Union are far worse and terrifying than National Socialism ever claimed. The Soviet Jews hermetically sealed off their terrorized nation from the rest of the world. Even experts and enemies of Bolshevist doctrine could not form a true picture of the real events in the area ruled by Bolshevism. Even the fantasies of the most fanatic opponents of Bolshevism could not reach the true hopelessness of the situation, revealed here in letters from German citizens at the front. Germany, German soldiers saw the Soviet Union. They will never forget what they have seen. Never again will anyone in Europe dare to apologize, much less defend Bolshevism and the results of its rule. Until at least Germany lost the war, right? Now they They're, wave red flags and they celebrate their surrender. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's incredible. It, it's a shame that even Goebbels couldn't foresee that because they had the eternal hope that Germany would prevail. In a righteous world, of course, we know that Germany should have prevailed. However, the whole world is ruled by the power of the wicked one. And it's, 
very ironic that America at the time, the I think the two largest ethnic groups were Germans and Italians. So doubtlessly, the American military was made up of a lot of Germans and Italians, and they went overseas and murdered their cousins. The power of Jewish propaganda, it's absolutely amazing what the power of the Jewish-controlled media can do to the minds of people. Look at today. Look, at the, look around us at the world today. We see the same thing. It, it's still here. There are few families in Germany today who do not have a member and therefore an eyewitness of Bolshevism. These letters already circulate within families and factories, villages, and party local groups. Now they reach millions who are working for victory, giving them a broader picture of the experiences and impressions of their brothers and sons. No one will put this pamphlet down without being deeply moved. His thoughts will then turn to the Fuhrer, the man who in the midst of Germany's deepest disgrace... What the Weimar Republic, right? What well, was the first to recognize and oppose the communist enemy? The few units of the SA and SS that opposed the Bolshevist Jewish enemy when Moscow's terror still prevailed in the streets of our great cities, when the Red Revolution threatened whole states and provinces of the Reich, and Moscow's foreign legion murdered German men on German soil. That now today they call themselves the Antifa, right? now have the whole German people with them. The enormous columns of German regiments and divisions are striking Bolshevism deep in Russia. At the right time and with careful forethought, the Fuhrer, side by side with all the awakened European nations, gave the command to save the West. That was Operation Barbarossa. The decision was difficult. The scale of the struggle vast and the results tremendous. Everyone today can see that the order given on June 22, 1941, was the greatest decision in Europe's life. The Bolshevist armies that today are being destroyed by the blows of the German army, blows from which they will never recover, were ready to attack Europe. Despite the treaties, the Bolshevist leaders were ready to attack when the hour was right. The presumed state of workers and soldiers had secret agreements with the plutocracies in capitalism. They were preparing the way for world Jewry to take over Central Europe and take over it did. If Stalin's tanks and planes had crossed our borders, it would have been the end of everything noble and beautiful in the world. Europe would have been filled with enslaved masses like the prisoners our soldiers find today in the East. A whole part of the world would have fallen into filth and misery if Adolf Hitler had not, at the last moment, intervened to forever eliminate the criminal danger. Roosevelt turned around and turned it over to them, right? We may not forget it. Moscow's criminals are praised as heroes and defenders of culture every day by the English and American press. People in London and New York pray for these animals in human form, and thousands of Jewish editors, speakers, and radio announcers to this very day are at work recruiting American youth to shed their blood for these subhumans. This lying and decaying world of plutocracy, along with its Bolshevist allies, may not and will not win. Well, well they won't, but it's, the battle's taken a little longer than, than the Germans could have imagined, right? No sacrifice is too great in comparison to what is at risk and what victory will bring us in the future. The letters from our soldiers during these decisive months will always be a testimony to our just cause. They are unique historical documents. Their significance is expressed by these words, propaganda minister of propaganda minister Dr. Goebbels, which we remind readers of 
in conclusion, and this is a quote from Goebbels, one has to realize what would have happened if the Fuhrer had not seen the dangers of Bolshevism and what is at risk. Our soldiers are witnesses of Moscow's plans. They have seen with their own eyes Bolshevism's plans to destroy Germany and Europe. They have had direct experience with the Soviet system and have been able to form a true picture of conditions in the paradise of workers and farmers. One must realize the significance of these facts for the future. Just as there was no debate in Germany about the Jewish question after the Polish campaign, now there will be no debate about Bolshevism. This fiery struggle is more than a campaign or a war. It is a historic battle of fate in the broadest sense of the term. And that's the end of our presentation. Do you have any closing comments? I just want to say that America clearly was on the wrong side. So all these people at trumpet the American military and say the greatest generation made the world safe for freedom. What freedom? We're living in a, a nightmare Orwellian police state. Everything's what? regulated. Look, look at the tyranny we live under with taxes. Look, look at what the triumph of Judaism in 1945 has done to the West. The average American pays 50% of his salary goes to the tax man. In one way or another, Everything that you buy in a store is taxed two, three, four, five, six, eight, ten times before the sales tax, before you pay the state sales tax. The, the, um, the average home, we pay here in New York on, on this house that I live in, we pay the value of this house right now every 15 years. We pay that value in property taxes. My property taxes right now are one-fifteenth the value of the house every year, going by what we actually paid for the house. That is communism. That is absolute communism. And, and, and everything, all of we have no property of our own. Everything we make is taxed many times. Everything we own is taxed many times. That's common. You read the planks of the Communist Manifesto. It's all been installed here in America under the triumph of Judaism. And, Bill, hypothetically, if some widow can't afford to pay the property tax on her home anymore, the government throws her out into the street. So is it really her home to begin with? She's just right. renting oh, it from right. her. That's why I say we have no property. We have no property. That's, that, that's the Marxist ideal, that there be no private property. They have done it in the West under the guise of taxation. You know, in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, in our ancient common law, a man could not be kicked out of his house for anything. Even if he, even if he injured someone else or if his, if his cow or his bull gored somebody, he would be liable for damages and have to make restitution, but they would never make him give up his house. His house was his. Well, well it, yes, at one time it was impossible to separate a man from his, from his home and, and his land. And, and, and that, that was the case in, in England until the Jewish system of the shetar prevailed there in the Middle Ages. And, you know, if you want to stick a canoe in Lake Erie and, and go boating or, you know, say you want to put, put a, a kayak somewhere and whatnot, you have to get a license. I was just in the DMV the other day, and they have a sign-up about boat licensing. What kind of society is that where you have to license a kayak? There's no well, freedom. Well, 
Licensing a kayak is pretty ridiculous, I think. I mean, I remember in New Jersey when I bought my first canoe in the 80s, I didn't have to license it because I wouldn't put a motor on it. If I ever put a motor on it, I would have had to register it. But, but yeah, every state has its, has, has its own draconian system of extorting its citizens for, for money. There's no doubt. That's what bureaucracies do. They do it naturally. They grow naturally. Bureaucracies have to grow in order to maintain their own sense of importance, and eventually it becomes tyranny. The founding fathers wrote about it. They wrote about the evils of the British bureaucracy. And in, 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 the 18, in, in the 1700s, they wrote about it. Franklin, Benjamin Franklin wrote about the evils of the British bureaucracy, how they had an office for, for every function. It, it's incredible. That's what, under the, the, the rule of, the, of world Jewry, and Britain was under world Jewry ever since the Bank of England was founded in, in the 1650s, I believe it was, or 1660s, Britain has been under the thumb of the Jew. And... and Ever since 1913, and, and they did for a while and until Andrew Jackson ended it, ever since 1913, America has been under the rule of the Jew. Absolutely, and these people are so worthless and useless, they have to regulate and tax normal daily functions. They have to tax the barter process, the exchange process. If I want to sell you my vehicle used, it doesn't matter that I already paid taxes on it when I bought it new. They want you to be charged sales tax for buying something used from me. Well, well the, the pattern of behavior, trial, error, punishment laid out for us in the Old Testament. And the children of Israel did evil in the eyes of the, war, of the Lord. And the Lord turned them over and, and gave them over to the Philistines. And the Philistines ruled over the children of Israel for 18 years until the children of Israel cried out to the Lord their God and repented. And, and, and then a Savior would be provided to overthrow the Philistines or overthrow the Edomites or overthrow the Egyptians or whoever had, had been oppressing the children of Israel because of the sins of the children of Israel. If modern history were written today like the ancient books of Kings and Chronicles and Judges and Joshua, we would see that the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and, and Yahweh God turned the children over to the Amalek, the children of Israel over to the Amalekites. When did he do that? He did it in 1913. But today, the children of Israel, they don't know what to repent from. So they can't come out from under the oppression of the Amalekites because they don't even know they're doing anything wrong. They don't because know who the Amalekites are. They really have them tricked this time, right? And yes, they don't even know who the Amalekites are. Well, I'm sure the same neocons that talk about the greatest generation, they think we're the greatest country in the world and we're the most righteous country in the world. They're really the greatest generation of whores. That's precisely what they are. By any objective criteria, though, America's a monstrously wicked nation. Well, absolutely. I mean, we've gone to war against our own brethren over and over again. The English have done the same thing. That they've oppressed Europe, they've oppressed the Irish, they've oppressed the Scots, they've oppressed the French, they've oppressed the Germans, all of their own brethren they've oppressed as a nation for, for um, ever since the Bank of England was founded. And the British invented the concentration camp. Yes, they did. And they oppressed the Dutch, and they're still, oppressed, they're still oppressing the Boers of South Africa, there's no doubt. Absolutely, and I just wanted to say that America may have some freedoms, but let's say in a world where the average country is an F in terms of freedom, 
America's maybe a D or a D minus, which means we're better than most other countries, but we still have a lot of room for improvement. Well, well we're I, not at all. We're under the sum of the Jews. The British had been under the sum of the Jews since the 1660s. We've been under the sum of the Jews. And next year, it'll be 100 years. 2013, it'll be 100 years of, of our national slavery to the Jew bankers in control of the Federal Reserve. I wonder if they're going to have some sort of commemoration or some sort of event. Oh, I'm sure they'll be celebrating all the, in all the yeshivas and synagogues across the country. There's no doubt. Maybe they'll print off a trillion dollars and give it to Israel to commemorate the 100 years of the Federal Reserve. Uh, either that or, or, or they'll give it to the, to the Negroes so that they could cheaply buy up the property of all the unemployed white men. Okay, with that, I'm going to end the program. Thank you for being here tonight, Brian, and, and, and thank you, everybody, for listening. And praise Yahweh. I will be here on Friday from Kentucky with Luke chapter 2. Good. Thank you for having me here. Praise Yahweh.